Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others, and the planet. Welcome to episode 32 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. I'm so pleased to have on the show today, Dr. Katie Wellen. Katie is the host of the Getting in the Loop podcast and a researcher in sustainable business at Rise Research Institute, Sweden. Katie has dedicated her career to helping create a better future environmentally. Let's get into the episode. Katie, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Brad. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I've been listening to your podcast for so long, Katie. So this is this is great. Katie, what what's your backstory? What got you involved in environmental early on in your life? Yeah, well, that's a that's a great question. Uh, maybe before I say anything, I should just point out that today I come from my getting in the loop hat. And so it's not my, my day job and all of the views that I'm expressing on this podcast are of my own and don't reflect uh, rise, which is the, the organization that I, I work with um, during, during the day. Uh, so my backstory to getting to know more about the environment is uh, c- kind of funny, actually, because I started out as a naval architect and marine engineer. So basically a, a boat designer. Uh, I went through four years of specialized college to do that. Uh, and there was little discussion about environmental issues. Uh, maybe your listeners know that the marine uh, transport is accounts for like 2.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So that's kind of a significant percentage, but it's not so much talked about um, in in the maritime industry and kind of when you're training to be a a ship designer, it's sort of always on on the side. So I largely ignored environmental issues uh, for the first part of my professional career. But then I decided that I didn't want to just limit myself to boats for the rest of my life. I wanted to do more types of products, uh, if you can call a boat a a product. And so I went to the Netherlands to study at TU Delft, uh, which is the Delft Technical University. And it was there that I was first introduced to design thinking and sustainability, and then in my final year, circular economy. Wow. So... And was that, Katie, because it was already very prevalent in that part of the world, or was it just the university that you ended up in? That's a great question. I think it's a combination of both. So Delft is kind of one of, I I think it is one of the forefront institutions related to sustainable product design. Uh, They've been doing eco-design for many, many years there. So I kind of got dropped into a scenario where this was just part of our normal curriculum, uh, learning about life cycle assessment and thinking about um, incremental improvements for designing products and things like that. But you're probably also correct that 
I came from the United States. That's my home country. And we have a little bit of a touch and go approach to environmental issues. Uh, and then going to the Netherlands where it's quite prevalent. Um, so yeah, I think that definitely it was a mixture of, of both. Yeah. I got to, we got to put our hand up in Australia too. And, you know, we are a bit of a mixed bag traditionally on environmental, but I got to admit both sides of politics now seem to be moving really well in that direction, which is great to see. Okay. This is a bit of out of left field question, but do you have any view on why is Scandinavia ahead on circular economy? Why was it leading? Why is it so advanced in this regard? Do you have any view on that? Hmm. That's a great, that is a great question as well. Um, a bit of left field. I think my, my gut reaction is that, and this is not based on just my own view, but also what I'm from talking to people on the getting in the loop podcast. So we just, uh, I just interviewed Ellen uh, Bergman who uh, she has been kind of deemed like the circular economy queen of Sweden. And she, she's, um, working for this organization called CradleNet, which is a, one of the oldest platforms accelerating the transition towards a circular economy. Uh, and there's kind of this misconception that we're really far ahead in regards to oh. circular economy. Uh, and this is this is not just my own kind of view, but this is also what Aylin was saying on her podcast interview, for example. Um, so there's a lot of different things that we do in Sweden uh, to, for example, like close resource loops. Uh, so like recycling and, and, and things like that, but there's also a lot of incineration. So you might have heard that like Sweden yeah. takes trash from other com countries and then they burn that and that's, you know, used as uh, heat in, in, in cities in Sweden. Um, but that's kind of, from a circular economy perspective, it's kind of, you're missing out on a lot of other possibilities to, to reuse that waste. And so I would say that's kind of like a end of pipe solution and maybe actually not ideal. Uh, so yeah, I kind of twisted that around. I don't know if that was the answer you were expecting. I, I think it was very, a very humble answer for the region. I, I've, I've have heard about that incineration approach before, and I think there is some elements of it coming into Australia at the moment too. So, but there is also a lot of investment in recycling and then post-recycling innovation and product development. So that's a positive. Katie, a number of our listeners may not understand yet what the circular economy is. Do you, do you mind explaining briefly what the circular economy is and w where it's come from in your view? Yeah, sure. So the idea kind of gained traction, I'd say in the last 10 years, largely because of an organization called the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Uh, and they really were championing this idea, but the idea has kind of been around for a long time. I would say maybe since the sixties, there's a economist and uh, kind of, he was a philosopher named Kenneth uh, Balding. And you can look him up. He's, he's quite fascinating. I, I, I looked him up the other the day to, and actually I've read his works before. He has this, this kind of essay called, um, I'm blanking on the name at the moment about something about the, the earth as a spaceship and the, the coming of 
Earth. That's not the the complete title, but if you probably Google that, you'll 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 get close enough. And uh, basically, the idea behind circular economy is trying to decouple economic activity from finite resource consumption. And the way that circular economy champions that is by modeling the economic system off of natural ones, which are regenerative and cyclical. So Ken Webster, uh, he's a great thinker about that. And one of the the former head of uh, innovation for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, he always talks about uh, the cherry tree. So it blossoms, then the leaves fall to the ground when they're sucked up by the soil as nutrients. And then that helps the tree grow further. And it's this kind of cycling idea. So that's a little bit about kind of why it's called circular economy, because you're trying to figure out what kinds of outputs that you have in your existing system and how they can be used as new inputs. Uh, Basically waste becomes a resource. So there's no such thing as waste in a circular economy. And it's often used kind of this idea of linear economy saying that that's what we have today where we kind of take things we make we take materials we make products and then we discard them at the end of life so maybe we landfill them or we burn them uh and that's kind of what we're not trying to do we're trying to avoid this linear economy and move towards a circular one so we can capture as much value from resources uh, that we have as much as possible yeah, thanks for the explanation, Kay. That was awesome. Kay, with in one of your episodes on your podcast, the Getting in Loop podcast, I heard, heard you say something quite profound, which really inspired me. It, you, it was after you got your PhD, and you said in that speech, "We need in organisations and business, we need to focus on creating loops and slowing down loops." Do you do you mind explaining the concepts of creating loops and slowing down loops? from what you were talking about in that speech I heard. Yeah. So that was a a lecture or speech or keynote. I don't know what you would want to call it, but yeah. And I, and I gave that at the, towards the end of my, my PhD last year. So very good memory, Brad. Uh, And it's based off of research uh, that um, one of my advisors, Nancy, Dr. Nancy Bakken and some colleagues of hers at TU Delft. I believe they wrote this paper uh, back in 2016, but it was based on, and it's a it's jam-packed with different examples of companies that have done this so that they have been trying to slow loops and close loops. And essentially slowing uh, can be thought of as extending the useful life of products and closing is kind of like extending the useful life of materials. And in the, the speech, uh, I gave kind of the example of phones. So if you'd have slowing for a phone, then that would be, um, instead of replacing phones with new ones, we would then design them to be repaired. And one of the kind of companies that gets mentioned a lot here is Fairphone. I don't know if you've heard of them, Brad. On your podcast. Of course, I talk a lot. I talk a lot about them. I feel like I'm a one-trick pony. Sometimes I just say the same things over and over. It's a again. great. It's a great example. Yeah, 
Well, I'm glad you, you like it. So they're based in Amsterdam and they have, I think I'm probably going to get this wrong. It's like the Fairphone two or three. Now they have a couple different models and what they've done is actually they've created a modular phone so that you can get to the battery and replace the battery. Let's say if it's broken or it needs to be replaced, you can do that. I think in around two minutes. Um, and a lot of leading phone brands, I'm not going to name names, uh, but, uh, it might take like 20 minutes before you actually can get to the battery. So that's not really an incentive incentive or really sort of enabling companies to actually want to do repair uh, if it's going to take a long time for you to actually get to the, the part that's going to fail first. So that's kind of what slowing is, is thinking about how we can help uh, extend the useful life of products. Uh, and then closing... I actually have a question. I'm going to turn this around and ask you. So do you have any phones in your drawer at home? No, I don't. Sorry, Katie, but I know most people do. So I know it's quite common. (laughs) You normally have about three. I think the stats say that Australians have on average four in their drawers at home. That seems quite similar to what I've heard uh, as well around, around the world. So I think, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I I can, I know of at least two or three that I have um, from different models that I've collected over the years. Uh, But yeah, so slowing would basically be that there would be incentives and structures put in place so that instead of these phones collecting dust in our drawers, we would be incentivized to return them and then companies uh, would actually be able to recycle the the phones and obtain the precious materials from them. Um, So I was working on a a MOOC, a massive open online course during my time at Lund University, uh, and it's now available on Coursera. And one of the companies that we interviewed was uh, Umicore, which is a Belgium recycling company. And they actually do this, they do recycling of phones. Uh, And I think that it takes them about four tons of phones to get one kilogram of gold, which could seem like a lot, but then I think it's like 200 tons of ore that you need to get the same amount of gold. So um, yeah, it's a more efficient way to get hold of gold. Yeah, I think so. Well, we have to compare the the energy requirements, but I th- I think it is. Yeah, yeah, especially with the if if you can then apply green energy to that and what processes you're doing, it's you know it's a good outcome. Yeah, for sure. Katie, one question I've got, and again, I'm sorry, this is out of left field, but I am grey haired now, and I've been around for forty odd years, and it doesn't seem that long ago to me that everything you bought, you could replace the battery. Everything you bought, you could replace parts. So I'm talking probably the 90s. It was like everything you bought, you could replace it rapidly and repair. And then I have my father who's even grayer than me. And he talks about how after the Second World War, when he could start remembering, he, uh, you know, you take your jars to get your flour, you take your bags to get your fruit. You would basically, you're fairly circular. So when I have conversations with him about circular economy, 
you know, I hear all these tales and they're wonderful. But what do you think happened through the noughties and the late 90s and into the noughties? Because you're exactly right. Things have become worse. It's become more difficult to slow the loop and so much more disposable. Yes. Yes. I, I definitely agree with you there. And I don't, don't have that many gray hairs yet. They're probably coming soon. Uh, so, <laughs> I take the cake. <laughs> so I, I don't have like the historical perspective so much to, to, to speak from, but I think from sort of this, the, the researcher in me would uh, definitely agree that we, we kind of have this this turning point, I don't know if it's a turning point, but it's this, this, this kind of uh, conflicting issue where we want to have consumption, uh, but also then how do we, uh, how do we not have uh, consumption? It's kind of this, this challenge. And I, I think we're, we run into this a lot when we're doing, uh, trying to work with companies to do circular business model innovation, uh, because there is definitely this, um, and, and I'm now drawing a blank on like the name for it, but you, uh, maybe you can help me out, Brad, yeah. but it's basically when, when you, um, like the, the sort of standard business logic is to just produce as much as possible and uh, to economy of scale, just produce exactly. mass volume. And it's sort of like at the same time as it's going to mass factories, mass volumes, it's as if we went to mass consumerism also, which was don't worry about replacing the battery. You don't need that. You just going to put it in the bin. Don't worry about like having to have a screw on the thing that you can actually undo because it's just going to go in the bin. It's like so much of what became consumed just cranked to this mass consumerism, mass production, throw it out. And it was only, like I said, Katie, I, th I think it was really from the mid-90s through the noughties that just really cranked up to a whole new level. Something drove it. I don't know what drove it. But it's like we're having to look back in time and rapidly reverse and take things to a whole new place for the sake of our environment at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. You have, you have, you know, like in fashion and apparel, it used to be like, you'd have like two seasons for clothing, uh, a, a spring and the, the fall kind of like the, the summer and winter collection. Right. And now it's like every, what is it? Two weeks or something that there's a new, a new cycle. So yeah, this is a, a big challenge that we, we face when kind of trying to work with, with companies because the dominant business logic is this, like, as you said, just pushing things out, uh, and, and having these short cycles. And then you, then you're trying to do these like slowing and closing loops. It really contrasts with that, uh, and trying to find a way to extend product lifetimes and, and have a, your business, uh, be financially viable is like kind of this contrast with this pushing, um, and having like a new thing every season. Yeah, you really, what you're saying, guys, we, we, we need to get back to, back to our roots from 20, 30 years ago, if not before, and look at the whole life cycle of a product and the services that go with the product as a value-add financial creation rather than purely the sale of that item that's then going to go to the tip. 
Exactly, exactly. And there are a lot of sort of, I think, drivers coming for this as well. Like in the EU, for example, there's discussions about like minimal product lifetimes and things like that. So that they're kind of pushing in this way that, you know, products must last for this much uh, lifetime and, and work in this, this, uh, this long. So I think that there are kind of, there are some outside factors that are also kind of influencing companies who are interested to take a look as like, how can we add value uh, to having these additional services? Or how could we actually, if we don't sell the product, but instead we lease the product, then maybe we're incentivized actually to design it to last longer and to use it as long as possible. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that I've been recently working on is kind of this idea of designing, how to design products that maybe are going to be changed in the future uh, because, you know, new models or new tech or things like that. But how do you, how do you design products so that they can be adaptable in the future uh, and allow you to have this business model that, you know, allows you to use products for as long as possible while keeping them up to date. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's certainly anything we can do to extend that life, but I guess businesses, we need to go back to think outside the square. Cause I, like we've been talking about, I don't think it's that long ago that we were doing this to a degree. It's to me, I guess in my, I'm sounding like an old man now, but it seems like in the last 20 years we've lost it and we need to rediscover it now. And we do need to take it to another level it's not as if it was perfect 20 years ago by any means but um okay what can organizations do to think about this and actually start moving forward with a more circular approach or an approach that actually slows down the loop yeah so um before we started recording brad you you talked about like win-win solutions and i think that that's kind of uh to me, the the core of and what gets me excited about circular economy is, I sometimes say that I think circular economy is like design thinking meets sustainability, uh, because, you know, design thinking is about understanding the user, working towards a solution that is first and foremost desirable from a human perspective, but then also feasible and economically viable, and then sustainability is kind of like how can we make products less bad and how can we do better for the environment? But then to me, circular economy mixes them together. Um, and I think that organizations that I've seen that kind of do this quite well is thinking about like, how can I slow, how can I contribute to slowing? How can I contribute to closing? Um, so I have a couple of examples if you want me That'd to be great. share. Thanks, Katie. Okay. So one of the ones that I always talk about is uh, GIAB, which is this organization uh, near Lund where I did my, my PhD. And basically they, they contribute to slowing of mobile phones uh, because they, uh, they, they want to extend the lifetimes of phones. So they want to do repair for phones. Um, and the way that they found out, they found a win-win solution for this, which was they found an organization like a, sort of a stakeholder in <laughs> the value chain who was kind of incentivized to actually have extension of mobile phones. Do you know who that sort of, I'm talking about a specific group, but do you know who that is? No, no. 
So insurance companies. Wow. Insurance companies. Yes. I didn't expect you to say that. Exactly. So they, they thought, okay, so insurance companies actually are incentivized for people to maybe repair their mobile phones and, and not have to make like a big payout for their mobile phones. Uh, so they partnered with insurance companies and uh, now some insurance companies, they send their mobile, instead of paying out their customers, if their phone is broken or something like that, if they make a claim, then the phone goes to Giob uh, instead. And Giob then works with partners to repair the phones. And then uh, a new phone is avoided having to be purchased. Um, and I think from the research that we did with them, I'm sure it's changed now because this was about three or four years ago and Giab has had massive expansion since then. Um, but they, when they, they were running the numbers initially, they were estimating that they saved uh, insurance companies like 30% of claims, like they decreased wow. by 30%. Wow, that's massive. That's a huge win-win economically and then a huge win environmentally. So th- Exactly. So that's a key thought process that you see in a lot of examples, Kay, that companies are able to find that win-win between economic and environmental. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of the examples that I usually focus on, or I have talked about in the past, uh, either on the podcast, my, my own podcast or in the work that I've been doing, they focus kind of on like these more startups. So like or what my, I might refer to them as like gap exploiters. So they're exploiting sort of a gap in the market. Um, but what we also see from like the larger companies, like manufacturing companies, they're also trying to identify these win-win solutions. So maybe running pilots, just like trying to do take back of products. Uh, and one of the things that they might be able to learn there is like, okay, so why are these products, um, getting older or maybe having more visible signs of wear, uh, how could we actually um, design them in a bit different way uh, so that they would actually have their life extended? And is there any sort of additional value that we could capture from that? Uh, maybe if you know we leased the product instead of selling it outright, then we have the ability to have ownership for a longer time. So we are incentivized to actually reduce uh, reduced re- repair and maintenance costs over the lifetime of the product. Yeah, it's massive. I had an interesting example the other day. I was listening to the, a podcast on the Tim Ferriss show with Mark Randolph, the founder of Netflix. Uh-huh. And it was actually like their model started out in a linear model, you know, sell, you know, uh, it was VHS cassettes. This is back in my era, but no, I remember VHS. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> Having so to sell, rewind everything before you send it back to Blockbuster, at least in the States, we had, we had Blockbuster. Yeah. Yeah. So they had that linear model and it was actually really, they didn't see it as succeeding for them. And it's when they started to shift to the more subscription circular approach where initially they did it with um, DVDs that they actually started to create a unique sustainable business and create a competitive advantage. And of course, I had an extremely agile culture and were able to innovate fast. And now you look at it like the, and correct me if I'm wrong, Katie, but the circularity of being able to use Netflix and draw in to, you know, videos and movies and watch them without having physical material, you know, 
ending up in DVD stores and then damaged and lost and broken and put in the bin. It, it's quite a environmental success story in some regards. Yeah, it is a really interesting perspective there. And I think in terms of there's, I see these reports come by about like the, is it much more sustainable? How much more sustainable? Because of course, now you have to have all of this data storage and things like that. I think that's kind of a whole, we can, that's a whole road that maybe we don't get down. But I think basically how I like to think about it is like the simplest way is like, what is it replacing? Like if it's replacing these uh, DVDs and these things that, you know, aren't going to get reused, then okay, yes, it, it is a success. Now, you know, LCA experts probably will hate me for saying that, but, you know, I think, yeah, if, it, if it's replacing something, then it definitely, and I think that there's a lot of opportunities for that. Um, yeah, just, yeah, again, design thinking kind of with the sustainability perspective. Um, yeah, it is, a, it is a big picture. Like you're saying, Katie, there's more to it than just what you see. Like you mentioned the data storage and the infrastructure and the energy behind running that. And how is that energy running this, coming to run that system? Like it is, you need to look at the complete, helicopter view in a way don't you to truly understand what the impacts are or what they're not exactly it's the systems perspective this like macro scale uh perspective and i think ken webster actually introduced me to um, this idea of like the macroscope so you know we have like a microscope to see things very small in detail but actually we need a macroscope to be able to address kind of these challenges that we're facing uh in the 21st century yeah yeah we got to look at the system as a whole to truly understand whether there is a positive outcome or a negative outcome katie what what advice would you give to a leader looking to do something differently make a difference actually create a better future environmentally while they're still you know creating a successful business or organization for the future yeah this is a this is I feel like I've said this now multiple times. It's a, it's a great question, but it is a great question. And I also, I ask this quite a lot when I have people come on my podcast as well, because I'm really curious to see how people respond. And um, so when I was talking to John Lanier, who's the the grandson of Ray, uh, Ray Anderson, who founded Interface, which is yeah. kind of one of the, you're familiar with it was this. A great, it was a great episode. It was a very good episode. Thank you. Yeah, he was so great to talk to. We had a lot of different, a lot of different things in common. Uh, and Interface is kind of like the textbook example for how to do, you know, sustainability at a, I don't want to say micro scale, but kind of like in a company perspective. Uh, and so John was talking about, you know, having a, a shift in culture in business is kind of like the core thing that you need. Um, having each person in the company taking it seriously and making sure that there's champions on every level. And so one of the things that he mentioned that they did in interface was to have like an incentive structure. Uh, so like a bonus check for ideas, if they could help increase efficiency or reduce waste, basically just trying to get people to think kind of in this design thinking way, having new ideas and, and new innovations and you know, having those like left, those like those blue sky ideas, like what if we partnered with an insurance firm, for example, then how could that benefit us and the insurance company? 
So um, trying to have people get a share in sort of the financial rewards for having these new ideas, that was kind of one of the things that really stuck out for me from the interview uh, with uh, with uh, John. Yeah. Katie, one thing I'm hearing and with design thinking, and please correct me if I'm wrong and please add to this. So design thinking is really in a way, it's like you say, it's getting yourself up in that helicopter above the organization and looking at the whole system from raw materials right the way through and thinking about the design of your product and your services right from the start, right from the cradle, as Ken would say, that infancy and design thinking on how can we do this and create value for our planet, but then also value for our organization and value for people. Am I on the right track? And is there any more you'd add to that or correct? I think that's a really great summary, Brad. Uh, And again, this is kind of my view on circular economy as well. And I think it was a couple years ago that there was a, again, I'm coming from the, the academic perspective, but there was a an article published from the Netherlands that there's like 144 definitions of circular economy. So there's by no mean a, means a consensus on what circular economy is, but this is kind of how I have viewed it. And I think uh, that's kind of, yeah, how I, uh, how I, have had how I had it explained to me as well um, and how I actually got really interested in it. So I think that was a good summary. Thanks, Katie. Katie, question I like to ask all my guests. I'm really looking forward to your answer because I'm, I'm sure there's many things here in the field you're in because it's so, it's so, it is cutting edge. What have you learned recently about your area of expertise that you didn't know before? What's been a recent insight that you've had? when you sent me the materials to prep for this, I saw this and I just thought, I really need to steal this question. This is a great question. So well done, Brad. Uh, Katie, I pretty well stole it from Dave Stahoviak on the Coaching for Leaders podcast. I changed it, but he knows I did. I had him on, he's coming on the episode too. But anyway, you take it, you can have it too. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I think I had to think really long and hard about this one. Um, And it came down to actually uh, something that I've learned maybe because of the people that I've talked to from the podcast, but also connecting with the listeners on uh, the podcast, my, my podcast was that I've seen some different areas that are picking up, I think, traction in terms of circular economy, where there's a lot of interest in circular economy. Uh, and so one of the areas that I found quite interesting was that uh, packaging and plastics has been getting a lot of traction. Um, so that might mean that if I release an episode that's about this, uh, it does really well compared to episodes that might be about like design for circular products or things like that. And I thought it was a bit ironic because well, Ken and I have had discussions about this as well, but maybe plastics aren't the most uh, ideal material from a circular economy perspective, because currently there's like significant limitations in the number of times that they can be recycled and there's current technology kind of issues with with that. Um, And also that they're a sort of a byproduct of the oil, the the petroleum industry, which is kind of being phased out maybe i at least 
with this whole discussion of sustainable energy technology. So um, maybe that's a whole discussion for another time, Brad, but I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and I only really noticed this when I put together like an ebook uh, uh, called like the Circular Sectors Navigator. And if it's okay with you, we could, maybe we could link to uh, that yeah. in the, sh the show notes of your, uh, excellent. Uh, and, and so I kind of found these three areas that I thought were getting a lot of discussion. So it was textiles and apparel, uh, ICT and electronics, and of course, packaging and plastics. So maybe that's interesting to you or to your, to your listeners, um, kind of like this high level of these trends. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And I think too, um, you know, when you, the impact of packaging on our planet is just so visible. And uh, I've seen documentaries that are just heartbreaking with what you see with wildlife and all sorts of things. Like it's, yeah, I can understand where they're big draw cards for people wanting to learn more and do something differently. Yes. And, and as you, I think you hit the nail on the head there in terms of it is very visible and, you know, these other, the other two uh, sectors kind of that I mentioned, the textiles and apparel and ICT and electronics, those are also two very visible kind of consumer facing for lack of a better word products as well. Uh, and so I think that's where a lot of like the attention has gone in the past for circular economy, like the, the packaging, which actually has gotten worse now, probably because of the, the COVID pandemic oh, uh, as yeah. well. Why worse? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but and maybe this is actually another, a bonus second thing that I've recently learned um, is that I think the more that I work in this area, I think that the really interesting circular economy opportunities are more on like the B2B side of things rather than the B2C, the B2Consumer side of things, which these kind of sectors like textile and apparel, SCT and electronics and packaging and plastics not maybe not so much the last one could also be b2b but the other ones a lot of them are uh b2c uh and i think that I, that would be something i would recommend to people is if you're interested in circular economy don't think automatically just about how can we take consumer products and make them circular let's think about other uh other aspects could we do more b2b because it actually might be easier to do like leasing pro leasing offers there, or it might be actually more environmentally impactful uh, to do that kind of focus. Yeah, it, it is. I'm, I'm heavily involved in that, Katie, for myself, I'm B2B with circular economy. And so you're exactly right. And it's also, uh, in a way, the design thinking is a lot simpler. Well, I find it very simple and it's easy for companies to shift and get results fast because most organizations at the moment are, are thinking about this and wanting to do something like I'm finding Katie in Australia. It's if, if not number one, it's number two on their priority. So when you get two companies connecting, you know, a selling company and a buying company and they're going, right, what's most important to you right now, Mr. Company customer, invariably number one or two is environmental. And so naturally there's traction because it's of high importance and you can easily rapidly get results. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and that, as you said, you take the, what's high on the minds of these two organizations and there you go. Okay. Let's think of win-win solutions that we can make 
that check off these boxes of these concerns. Yeah, it just works, which is a pleasure. It's, it's enjoyable being involved in that type of element. One thing I picked up on too, Katie, you and I are both talking about visibility, you know, that these things that are high on people's priority, there's probably a big part to play because they can see it and that's so visible. And I'm involved in enterprise excellence a lot with, you know, lean, agile, and so much of that is about make things visible. The more things are transparent, the more humans are likely to be able to engage and, you know, inspect, learn, adapt. It'd be interesting to look at how we could make some of these other challenges in our environment more visible. And maybe that might help drive some more traction in that regard. Yeah. Methane from cows, carbon emissions from cars and boats and planes and exactly maybe we come full we come full circle now because of the the boats where i talked about starting off as a boat designer and being in this industry and I, now maybe some of my uh my former classmates and colleagues from from the boat school will uh hate me for saying this but i think the the shipping industry has kind of gotten maybe so has kind of flown under the radar in terms of like uh, environmental standards and issues and things like that, be- because it's not so much of a visible uh, sector. Uh, now, this is completely just my own personal, <laughs> my own personal thinking here. But I mean, I remember when I first started off at boat school, I just thinking, I have never even like considered any of this before. There's just so much. It's a it's a completely different world because it is mainly just business to business, like no, uh, no consumer really thinks about the fact that a lot of their products actually come by boat and are shipped around the world, which is great because there's a lot of capacity to, you know, you can put a lot of things on container ships, um, and more space efficient than maybe putting them on airplanes, but you, you don't really think about that at all. Uh, and so, yeah, how do you increase the visibility of, these kind of areas that go under the radar that that's something that we should work we should work on together brad yeah there's a good topic for research there and planning well katie i I just want to say thanks you know thank you for all the knowledge you've brought to me through your getting in the loop podcast and thank you for sharing knowledge today to help us create a better future katie how how can people get in touch with you or get onto the podcast and listen to some of the great shows if they want to yeah, you can find uh, the podcast on all major podcast players, but you can also listen to it just by going to gettinginthelooppodcast.com. Uh, that's the, the easiest way. Katie, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thank you for helping us create a better future. Thank you so much, Brad. It has been so fun. And I have really enjoyed getting to know you in the last couple of years since you were, I think you were like the original getting in the loop podcast listener we've had so many good conversation and it's about time that i get you on the getting in the loop podcast as well yeah i think i must have been in the first few that's for sure because i was right there for your first episode and it's been brilliant so thank you kate the key takeaway for me from this episode was to think of your organization system as a whole when considering ways to improve towards a circular economy without doing this there is a risk that you make a gain in one area that produces an impact in another There are many techniques you can use to achieve this. One of the best I find is cradle to cradle customer journey mapping. This technique allows you to map your customer
customers experience organization systems and environmental impact in the one approach with the customer front and center and circularity in mind. It is a great technique to help an organization innovate and make improvements which will create additional value and delight for customers and reduce environmental impact. Thanks again for your knowledge and insights, Katie. Bye for now.